So what I'm going to try and do in the next uh, half an hour is help us understand a little bit uh, more about this paradox of the suffering of innocent people. And I want to straight up say that it's half an hour. And, and I, we could talk about this for hours. Books and books and books and books and books have been written on this. And uh, there is so much that we could say. And, uh, and so I say that by way of saying, forgive me if I leave things unsaid that you feel are important to say or I don't answer a question that's burning for you because I feel like I could try and answer everyone's questions, but we would be here all day. And, uh, and I could qualify everything I say, but then we would be here all day. So there's a lot to be said. So I say that. It's the first thing. And this is part, as a church family, of an ongoing journey. This isn't the only time we'll, we'll touch this. And, and that's why small groups are so very important through the week, so you can gather with a smaller community. Think about this. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is um, this is not a dry academic exercise for us, is it? Um, though I may present it a little bit like that in the interest of getting through the material, and it may seem a little dry, but it's really not. Um, it, it, the suffering of innocent people is all over our TV screens this week with the horrific uh, murders in Brisbane, the motor vehicle accident two weeks ago. They're on our TV screens, and I know in your own lives, some of you who I know well have experienced this very deeply. It's very personal for me. It's just over a year since my brother was murdered. So it's not academic. Now, my brother wasn't innocent, <laughs> but he was innocent of the events that led to his murder. So in that sense, it was entirely uh, evil and undeserved. So uh, we'll try and get through it. Um, it's also a place where, as we go through this, um, I don't know, there's no, when it comes to grief and suffering and loss, there's no right or wrong feelings right now. So uh, you, may, you may not feel particularly sad about anything that's happened recently. And, and that's actually okay. Or you may feel tragically sad about stuff and you don't really know why because it hasn't really touched you. And, and you know, that's also okay. So we just journey through this together and we love each other. Uh, Romans says, the book of Romans says, we're to mourn when others mourn and grieve when, and rejoice with, when others rejoice. So um, the Christian vision of community is a community of profound empathy. And so I just want to frame that and say, okay, that's what we're going to do. And uh, I don't know where it's going to land this morning, but we'll see. Uh, because it's profound, right? This, is, this book of Job is one of the greatest pieces of literature in, um, in, the, in the human canon. It has been profound. It, is, it has profoundly affected people for 3,000 years. It's been translated. It's been studied. It's been uh, you know, pondered over by the greatest minds in our culture because it raises these very profound things. And uh, we saw this in the story. The story is set up with Job as just a really great guy. Like he's deeply religious. He's so faithful to God that he does sort of preemptive sacrifices um, 
uh, to cover over any potential sin of his kids. If you have teenage kids who go out to parties, you may, you may identify with this. Even this morning, you may be here offering sacrifices for what your kids might have got up to last night. Uh, who knows? But that's what he does, you know. Early in the morning, he gets up, he sacrifices a burnt offering. He's so godly and faithful and religious, and he's a great family man. He's rich. He has it all. And the story goes, Satan uh, comes up to God and says, hey, listen, uh, let, I reckon all these human beings you've created, they just love you because of the good things you give them. Does anyone really love you, God, for you? And uh, so God agrees to, a, um, to really almost a wager with Satan. says, okay, go test my servant Job. You can take everything away from him. And let's see if he loves me for me. Right? How's Job going to go with suffering? He says, the only thing you can't do is you can't kill the guy. So in Job 1, uh, Job, in the first chapter of this book, Job loses uh, all his, ex, like his wealth and his family. Everyone gets killed, taken away from him. Uh, and, and he still praises God, as we see. He ends off with these very famous words. He says, naked I came into the womb. Uh, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll depart the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And you go, oh, okay. At least he's got his health. Ever heard people say that? Well, at least you've got your health. Well, except in chapter 2, he loses that. So chronic pain, skin disease that makes him a social outcast. In such discomfort, pre-analgesia, he's scraping off the boils, trying to find relief in any way possible. Uh, so he loses his health. And then the rest of the book, there's like 38 chapters Actually, 36 chapters of argumentation of discussing what's going on and, and who's responsible and what's happening here and, and who's right and who's wrong, and then it all gets resolved in the last few chapters. So that's the story of Job. Now, hold that in your head. We're going to cycle back to that. To frame that, what I wanted to do was, uh, was give you, in, to, to lead up to, to that again, uh, give you five approaches to suffering because this problem of suffering and the suffering of the innocents is not a problem that is new, nor is it a problem that is unique to Christianity. This is, this is what every, every human culture has attempted to resolve this and think about this and grapple with this. Every religious system attempts this. So uh, I was, I think that there really are essentially only four ways to resolve this, and all of them have intellectual and existential challenges. Um, I just think Christianity has the least problems and is the most livable and compelling. And so we'll think about that. We'll try and land there. Okay, and, uh, and we, we may have time at the end for some um, questions, but I doubt it. Bad karma. Why one very common answer, and when I say common, it's, it's, it's true in Hinduism, Sikhism, and some, many, uh, some forms of Buddhism, and it's come into our culture through the East. Uh, so there are, there are, you know, a billion and a half people who would hold this doctrine in some form or other. And the doctrine says the reason we suffer now is what? because of uh, something that we did in a previous life. So it's just bad karma. Something bad happens to you 
It's because of what you did in your past. And uh, that's... problematic, it seems to me, isn't it? Uh, for one, historically, the doctrine of reincarnation and karma emerged uh, on the basis of no evidence. It's, it's grounded in ancient mythical texts that no one really understands where they come from. They're just myths that emerged uh, in India, very ancient, and they've been accepted because everyone's trying to find an answer to this. So here's an answer. You're suffering. It's because, you know, and and, and at one level, it's quite a neat answer, right? Um, but it, there's no evidence for it. That's one problem. The other problem is um, it has extraordinarily unhelpful consequences if, if you live it out. So Mahatma Gandhi uh, famously said, the doctrine of reincarnation is a burden that is too intolerable for India to bear. Because what, doc, what bad karma and reincarnation introduces is a complete lack of empathy. You see, if something terrible happens to you, or let's, let's, let's go a little further, right? So uh, imagine a family and they have a, they have a little child and the child gets some horrifically painful cancer that that kills them slowly, and it's agonizing and it's terrible, right? We can imagine that. Now, in this doctrine, what's going on? Well, they are simply atoning for a sin that they committed in their past life. Maybe that little child was Pol Pot in their previous life. And in, if, if this child was Pol Pot, it's entirely appropriate that Pol Pot suffered tremendously to pay for what he did, right? Just to take an example. And, and what that means then is, in fact, it would be wrong for you to try and limit their suffering because they're actually paying. If you limit their suffering, you are interrupting the flow of karma and you will just prolong their suffering because the next life they'll have to be reincarnated in another form to suffer a little more. So let them suffer the fullness of what they have to suffer so that in the next life they can come back a, a little better, right? Um, what that does, so uh, so you see, is in fact, if you're in that family situation, their parents and their loved ones may actually be ashamed of that family and shun that family, because it's obvious if the child is so sick and 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 dying such a horrible death, it's very clear that they must have been a terrible being in the previous life. So there's a problem with that. It's, it's, you know, it resolves it, but it's not great. The other, the other problem is there's no evidence that, uh, that the self is continuous through various reincarnations. So uh, how can you learn or progress? Who is the self that is being judged over that time? So there's problems with bad karma. We sort of, you know... And, and for sure, we find this abhorrent because we've grown up in a Judeo-Christian worldview that says empathy and personal responsibility are critically important. So we have to, we have to own that and say, yeah, for sure, some of our problems with, that, with karma and reincarnation come because our whole way of seeing the world is being so shaped by, by Christianity that we, we find this, the cruelty of uh, this doctrine problematic. But it's one way of resolving it. Uh, the other way is uh, bad desire. So if you're, if you're unconvinced about karma, 
then the Buddha said, well, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to resolve the, the problem of suffering. And Buddhism, the four central truths of Buddhism, are all designed around suffering, defining suffering, uh, resolving suffering, and so forth. And the Buddha's answer to suffering was to say, the real problem with suffering is your desire. So if you have a child who is uh, getting cancer and dying, the way to get to resolve the problem of suffering is to remove your desire for a healthy child. Right? Makes sense. If you have no desire for your child to flourish and grow old with you, then if your child gets sick and dies, it doesn't affect you because the problem is your desire, bad desire. So here's a quote from the Buddha. This, O monks, is the truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the utter cessation of that craving, the withdrawal from it, the renouncing of it, the rejection of it, liberation from it, non-attachment to it. So the Buddhist answer to suffering is non-attachment, no desire. Now, that has a certain appeal, doesn't it? And at one level, it's right. There is a certain truth to it. Like, a lot of our suffering comes from our desires for things. So we have a desire for our children to grow old with us and for them to marry and reproduce. And, and when that is interrupted, that is extraordinarily painful. Uh, so, and it is true, if you could remove that desire, maybe you might remove some of the pain. But is that really a good answer to the problem of suffering? Because in removing the desire, aren't you also removing any real potential for love? Aren't you removing any real potential for relationship? So in the Buddhist conception of nirvana, nirvana is the extinguishment of desire, a pregnant nothing where you are ultimately non-attached to everything and you dissolve back into the universe. Have any of you seen the Netflix show The Good Place? Seen The Good Place? Hands up, a handful? Okay, only a few of you. Okay, spoiler alert. Hollywood Netflix does Buddhism to resolve this, and I'll leave you to watch to the end, and I'll tell you it's Buddhist, and see through it, and see the effect of it, and you go, it doesn't work, because there's no relationships that last in the, uh, that's a spoiler, there's no relationships that last in the end in Buddhism, because it's all about detachment and nothingness. So that's uh, bad karma, bad desire, and you go, well, of course, here in uh, Roselle and in Sydney, we're, we're not that convinced about these Eastern religions, really. We, you may have more of a scientific background. And, uh, and if you think the world is empty, and we really are here as a product of time plus chance, designed simply to replicate our selfish genes, then really all that happens in this world is bad luck. <laughs> bad karma, bad desire, bad luck. This is a quote from a 1987 book of Richard Dawkins, where he is arguing for exactly this. And he says, if the uni universe were just electrons and selfish genes, which is the, the, the kind of the Western scientific materialist view, if it were just this, meaningless tragedies are exactly what we should expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. Such a universe would be neither evil nor good in intention. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. 
The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I mean, Richard Dawkins puts things really well. Like, that's right. Blind, pitiless indifference in an empty universe. Of course, we, we sort of like the idea of an empty universe a lot of the time in our culture because it gives, out, it gives us the ability to fill the universe with ourselves. We can get away with whatever we want to, don't we? I mean, that's the great appeal. I can do what I want to. I'm not held to account. Uh, it's very, very appealing when your luck is good. And it's appealing to us because, by and large, as I look out of this room this morning, most of us have had very, very good luck, haven't we? In a uh, blind, pitiless, indifferent universe, we've won the genetic lottery to be born in a country like Australia or to be able to get residency in a country like Australia. And we're rich. And we've been born at a time in history where we have uh, anesthetics, where we have antibiotics for the moment, where we have healthcare. You know, like, so we can think this is appealing. We can, but when you, when you drill down into this as an answer for the suffering of innocence, we go, bad luck? Is that it? Is the world empty? I am very tempted very often by the empty universe materialist worldview. I am. That's my background. I'm a scientist, you know, science background, growing up here. Um, the thing that the thing that stops me ever believing the universe is empty is the cruel, pitiless indifference of an empty world. And when you've suffered enough and you've walked alongside people enough who've suffered, you go, whatever this world is with its suffering... It's got to be more than just bad luck and indifference. That seems just terrible. And we know that because actually it's very hard to live consistently with a bad luck view. Someone suffers close to you, you go, ah, just bad luck. That's the only hope we have if we're consistent. So, um, of course, the, 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 the new atheists like Dawkins who hold this view simultaneously hold this view that the universe is empty and it's bad luck, but then they criticize God, the God who they don't believe in, for allowing this world to exist in this fashion. One of the arguments that they would, that, that the atheist and atheist would give for holding the view that the universe is pitiless is that if there is a God, there are all kinds of problems with this God. How could God allow this? C.S. Lewis, a great philosopher who converted to Christianity, um, put this really well. And before he became a Christian, he said this. He said he, one of the biggest struggles he had against coming to faith was the cruelty and unjustness. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, my arguments against, argument against God collapsed too. So the only consistent view is to say, 
It's just empty, and there's no good or bad. There's no justice or injustice. That's just the way the world is. But of course, no atheist, uh, or we, we, we don't find that very satisfying. The reason we don't find that satisfying, we see they don't find that satisfying, is they argue continually against the existence of God on the basis of this suffering. But the only reason, well, why is suffering even suffering, not just bad luck? It's because in our heart of hearts, deep down, ineradicably written onto the soul of every human being, there is a sense that suffering, particularly of the innocent, is unjust and wrong, and there must be a being who is accountable for that and responsible for that. And, and, and so that takes us um, to this. Bad karma, bad desire, and bad luck are all bad news for the suffering and bad solutions to the paradox of a world where some suffer more than others, apparently without reasons. And that takes us right to Job and his experience. And uh, we're going to say some things here. Firstly, listen, the Bible knows this is a challenge, right? And, and so you go bad karma, bad uh, desire, bad luck, all have intellectual, like massive intellectual and existential problems. Believing in an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God also has intellectual and existential challenges. Like, it's not easy. There are, there's stuff that you go, huh? And we'll see that in Job. But don't think for a moment that the huh is a new thought. The Bible knows full well that, that trusting a loving, powerful God in the midst of the suffering of the innocents is really, really challenging. So 42 chapters of sublime, confusing, challenging literature given over in the book of Job and whole swathes of the rest of the Bible. Half or more of the Psalms are given over to this topic. It's just everywhere in the Bible. So here's some points we can make. Firstly, the book of Job makes the very clear point that God is in control. So chapter one we saw Satan has to come to Yahweh in his counsel and put to him the challenge of, uh, of will Job love him even if he loses all his stuff? And God is the one who allows it. He's in control. You read the Bible from cover to cover, and the Christian view says God is in control. You got it. You got it. That's it. Bang. Proposition number one. God is powerful, and he's in control. Proposition number two, not all suffering is deserved, right? Even Jesus, this is a, a view right through the Bible, and Jesus is explicitly asked this in John chapter 9, verse 3. Uh, some people come to him, they look at a man born blind, and they say to Jesus, Who, why is this guy blind? Why is he suffering? Why is this innocent man suffering so much? Is, did he sin or did his parents sin? He's really saying, Was it, is it karma? Is it bad luck? Is it God judging him for his sin? And Jesus said, well, it's neither. So not all suffering is deserved. Now it is true that at a meta level, all of the world is messed up and all the suffering and death and evil we experience comes from human rebellion against God at a grand level. But what the Bible never does is draw a tight one-on-one -on -one causal link between your actions and the outcomes in your own personal well-being in that tight sense, like it neither, neither within your own lifetime or stretching back into previous lives through karma. It says, no, no, innocent people suffer. And the Bible acknowledges that. 
proposition three, which flows from the first two. If the first two are true, and if the book of Job is true, God specifically allows suffering to happen to an innocent person. It's uh, what the Bible seems to allow it. You and I might go, why? And we'll come to that in a moment. But it's there. Like God says to Satan, yep, you can have a crack at Job. You can wipe out his family. You can wipe out his health. And we'll see. Now, that's hard, isn't it? I, I look at my life and I go, God, there are things that happened in my life, even recently, the murder of my brother. I go, why did you allow that? It seems a little rough, right? <laughs> and what I'm really saying is, I think I could do a better job of running the world than you, God. <laughs> That's really what I, you know, maybe I could, but I'd be the only one who would think that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I imagine if I, I <laughs> yeah, imagine that. It'd be terrible if, like, wow, it'd be bad for all. Actually, it'd be bad for all of us if any of us ran the world. Uh, the answer to this is very, and this is so hard to believe, that um, immediately after Job has suffered and everything's been taken away, there are like thirty-six uh, chapters of Job's friends. He has these four friends, and boy, they're great friends. You know, with friends like those, who really needs enemies? Um, and they, they come at him to try and comfort him, Job's comforters, and they comfort him with lots of pious platitudes and words and blah, blah, blah. But basically, what they're trying to do is hammer Job and get him to admit that he sinned. You must have sinned because you are suffering. That's what they're saying. There must be some causal link. Job, you can't be innocent. You just can't. It doesn't work because God doesn't allow innocent people to suffer. So Job, you, so the Bible grapples with this and wrestles with it. And those chapters, if you try and read Job, they are frustrating and they're kind of confusing. The very genre of the writing is designed to show us that this is extremely hard to understand. This messes with our heads and our hearts that God allows genuinely innocent people to suffer. And Job's genuinely, genuinely innocent yet experiencing horrific suffering. The Bible knows that's a problem. Okay. Now, typically what happens at this point when you think about suffering is theologians advance what is called the free will defense. Have you ever heard of that? The free will defense says the way the, the world the way the, the world is the way it is because uh, God gave us free will in order that we could freely love him back. And a condition of giving us free will was that we could also hurt each other. I happen to think it's a tremendously intellectually and emotionally compelling argument. This argument has kept me Christian. Um uh, because a wedding is less romantic if the father of the bride has a shotgun to the head of the groom to keep him in the room, right? <laughs> There's a fellow at medical school who uh, got his girlfriend pregnant, and they were from a Muslim family, a, a colored Muslim family in Cape Town, and that is literally what happened. The bride's uh, brothers came along and said to the, to the fellow in my class, if you don't marry her, we will kill you. So he married her. 
And then she miscarried and he divorced her. Right? It's not very romantic. There's no love in coercion. So why are you laughing at that? That's a terrible story. Um, so the free will defense works emotionally, and I think it works intellectually, um, and it's very compelling. And we know it in life that, that if, I, if I want you to love me, I also have to give you the capacity to not love me. Otherwise, it's not love. And that is the way God treats us. But what's fascinating in the book of Job is he never uses this defense. He just he doesn't use it. You'd go, well, why don't you use that, Job? That would make good sense if you were a philosopher. He says, no, he's got another point to make. He's got another point to make. And then we see in the book of Job, um, Job never gives up taking up his case with God. He keeps saying to God, God, I'm innocent. Why have you done this? I want to stand up and confront you, God. I want to, tr- I want to judge you, God, because you've messed up, God. And this is Job saying, I could run the world better than you. And uh, the answer in chapters 38 to 40, Job eventually gets his, his uh, meeting with God. And what it is, and I'd encourage you to go and read it, it's, a, it's, it's almost comic. Job stands there, and God stands there, and before Job can even open his mouth, God just gives him a barrage of questions, basically going, Job, who do you think you are? Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I did this? Were you, you, don't, you don't know anything, Job. Job, you're a kid. He gives him uh, a bunch of questions that put Job in his place as the, creator, not, as the creature, not the creator, and these questions function like an epistemic defibrillator. And I put that in because I love that phrase. And, and, and what I mean, you know what a defibrillator is? The paddles that you put them on your chest, you go, and it shocks you and gets your heart moving again. And epistemology is about how we know and think about the world. And so what these questions do is Job encounters God, and it's like these paddles put on his head that shock him into seeing the world in a whole new way. And what does he see? He sees that God is God and that he isn't. God is God and he is not. And therein lies the resolution. And Job replies, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I therefore despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The, The Jobian answer to the problem of innocent suffering is an encounter with God where we understand that God is God, that I am not, and that we trust that God even in the midst of our questions and our struggles and our challenges, and we say, God, you're God. That's it. Now, is that fully intellectually satisfying? Well, some people find it not to be so. But is it better than karma or desire or bad luck? Heck yes. And the final thing we say is, you know what? God has a view on suffering. This is my fifth unexpected point. Because the the way this is resolved, Job doesn't just encounter God as God who is in charge of everything and loves him. and, and, And God just says to Job, trust me. And Job goes, yep, okay, I will. What we see as the history of the Bible unfolds is that God is then a God who suffers himself 
For God, suffering is not a philosophical question. Suffering is not an illusion or a mistake. For God, suffering was a choice he made to end our suffering. This is the final resolution. This is how, as people who follow Jesus, we can trust God with the suffering of innocence and our own suffering because we see in time and space that this God does not remain an abstract philosophical idea. Suffering is not abstract to God. Suffering is something he experiences. He steps into this world as his son Jesus. He goes through the full gamut of innocent suffering, and he does it as a choice to end our suffering. Isaiah 53 says this, this is God's experience of suffering. He was despised, looking forward, the prophet looking forward hundreds of years to the Israel's Messiah. He says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything that makes for suffering and pain and brokenness and injustice in the world is laid on God himself, and he drinks that cup of suffering dry and absorbs it into his own being so that he can defeat it and triumph over it and set us free from it. It is not an abstract thing for God. It is not a distant thing for God. We do not live in an empty universe. We do not live in a universe with a vindictive God. We do not live in a universe with a capricious God. We do not live in a universe with a weak God. We live in a universe with a powerful, in-control God who himself was crucified as the truly innocent person so that you and I one day would never, ever suffer again. That's our God.